So let's talk about ketamine, and, and towards the end, I'll, uh, I'll try to tell you uh, a little bit what's known about the psychedelic side. I ha- I'm a musician, and, and I recall a, a bass player of mine from, from days past that uh, had some real experience with this. So when I couldn't find any data or anything in the literature to talk about, you know, what is it, this psychedelic thing, and what is this, uh, what is this feeling that people pursue, uh, I couldn't find anything really. I you know, there's a lot of anecdote and all over the place, but I, I called my old bo- bass player up, so I have some first-hand interview about what it's like to, uh, for the psychedelic experience, but we'll save that for the end. Okay, here's my, uh, here's my disclosures. There's nothing really about this except that I had recently published a survey and recently uh, published consensus uh, about the use of ketamine for CRPS, um, in a hope to develop a, a guideline so that people might do better research. But the conclusion of that was that there was no good research, and I'll talk about that some. Uh, so that's really the only relevant disclosure I have to make. Uh, and here's your learning objectives. So ketamine is a, a very, very interesting drug, and like most interesting drugs in analgesia, uh, it's not as straightforward as it first seemed. I mean, everybody said it's an NMDA receptor antagonist and quit talking. In fact, if you look at the neuropharmacology, uh, it is predominantly uh, NMDA uh, receptor antagonist, but it's also a potent AMPA receptor antagonist. And you guys probably know that those receptors live very close together. Uh, on the neurons, uh, and they have sometimes competitive and sometimes complementary effects. So this relationship of NMDA and AMPA uh, is uh, very poorly understood neuropharmacologically, but also uh, in terms of ketamine, it's, it's almost out to lunch. Uh, but, but interestingly, it's uh, monoamine, muscarinic, uh, and a mu2 opioid. And this will bring me back to a point when we're talking about ketamine for analgesia, it turns out it's twice as good as morphine is in terms of analgesia, just sheer pain relief. And this is not the anamestic effects, et cetera, of of ketamine. This is real straight-up analgesia. So uh, we don't know whether that's due to the the NMDA-AMPA effect or that's the, uh, the uh, opioid uh, effect. Uh, but just remember that it's better than morphine in terms of, uh, uh, of analgesia. So the neuropharmacology, it's a, a non-competitive antagonist at NMDA, uh, binds to mu and sigma receptors. Uh, it's water and lipid soluble. It goes right across the blood-brain barrier. Uh, and um, no matter how you take it or how you give it, uh, it ends up in the central nervous system, not only the spinal cord where, you know, we know a little bit about what the NMDA receptor does, uh, but uh, all the way up into the brain. Uh, And, of course, this is obvious or you wouldn't have psychedelic effects. Uh, But we'll talk uh, more about those things as uh, as we go on. So the anesthetic uses, um, it's a dissociative. Uh, and this is why you, you find it very frequently now uh, in the operating suite, because uh, you can give this to sort of chill people out in low dose. Uh, and then as you turn up the dose, 
they cease to have memories of what happened, and they, they don't seem to really react to the external environment. Uh, and then higher doses, you start to get into the dystonic reactions and, and some of the bad things. But uh, it, it's an excellent uh, uh, co-anesthetic drug, uh, not only, for instance, on the battlefield, uh, but in the uh, operating suite. Um, so it's, it's an anesthetic, it's an analgesic, it, it's anamestic. Uh, but there's some very interesting things uh, pharmacologically that are a positive. Uh, instead of causing uh, decreased blood pressure and respiratory depression, as we find in, uh, in for instance, in opioid uh, co-administration, this drug actually elevates blood pressure and actually is bronchodilatory. So it, so it improves respiration, improves perfusion, uh, as opposed to those, those other drugs that are, uh, you know, that as far as I can tell, this week are bad. You know, opioids, this week bad, last week you're a bad doctor if you don't use them for everybody. So I kind of have difficulty keeping up with uh, whether we should be using morphine or not. Um, it's used in uh, intensive care, emergency medicine, battlefield medicine. Uh, it has been used uh, fairly extensively, but mostly anecdotally in terms of headache treatments, uh, primarily migraine. Uh, and the best literature you'll find, if you want to find some real good randomized control trials of ketamine, the only place you're going to find it is in the psychiatric arena. It's not only been used uh, for the treatment of depression. If you go way back to the 70s, uh, it was used fairly extensively uh, for a while as a treatment for depression, uh, but it's also a good anxiolytic and low dose, and this may be the reasons, for instance, that it would be um, uh, useful uh, for battlefield. Um, and uh, certainly for some pediatric pr uh, procedures, it has extensive use in, the vet in veterinary medicine uh, because it just takes the, the cortex away from the animal's response to what's going on. Uh, and we'll talk a little, well, I guess we won't talk about the, the veterinary use, but we will talk about the battlefield use uh, the, first, um, uh, the first use of this uh, at, for first responders, we call them. These guys, they run out onto the battlefield. People are all shot up and bleeding. Uh, and they used to give them a shot of morphine. Uh, you know, certainly in uh, World War I, World War II, that was the approach. You give them enough morphine until they stop screaming, and then you put them on a stretcher and get them back to the MASH units and then back to the uh, uh, surgical hospitals. Uh, but they, they started including it in the pack that these, um, uh, that, that these uh, medic, you've all, you've all heard the medic, medic. Well, uh, it, instead of going and hitting them with just a high dose of morphine, and that they've already lost blood volume, their blood pressure's down, uh, their pulse is up, uh, you know, they have respiratory issues, if, especially if they've been shot in the, uh, in the thorax, this drug actually will, will help things in, in regards to increasing the blood pressure and improving uh, respiration. So um, what, what the commonality is now is that, that they will use a low dose of opioid, uh, but then they will use dissociative doses uh, of, the, uh, of ketamine on the battlefield. And this was, this was first in the 1970s in Vietnam. Uh, anybody seen Jacob's Ladder out there? Oh, or two or three. Fabulous movie. You've got to watch it. 
it's it's old now, but it's uh, it's about the the use of uh, psychedelics uh, in the Vietnam War. So please watch Jacob's Ladder, but, and I won't tell you anything more. You gotta you gotta not have it spoiled. Nobody do a spoiler alert. Um, the history of ketamine in pain per se. Uh, first formal clinical report in 1989, um, uh, published in Pain. Um, and again, the, the special properties that, that we want to attend to as, uh, uh, as pain doctors, airways were preserved, um, great anxiolytic, analgesic, um, amnesia, uh, and, and this is key. It's the safest anesthetic for inexperienced uh, uh, users. In other words, the medics who were not doctors, uh, they were usually corporals, they didn't have a lot of medical background, but, but this drug is safe. Err than, uh, than, than opioid. Um, this also spills over into what I'll talk about at the end of the talk, which is the abuse of the drug. Uh, so it, it, you know, there's not a lot of people dropping dead from, from the abuse of ketamine because it's a, you know, it's a pretty safe drug. Uh, it's a scary drug. It, it causes huge change uh, in, in perspective and cognition. Uh, and the ability to cognate, but, uh, but in terms of people just dying from it, it's, uh, uh, that's pretty rare. Now, at this point, I'd love to start talking about, you know, all the brilliant fMRI and DTI and uh, Q, uh, EEG studies of ketamine before and after and in pain and on the pain structures, et cetera, but no. There's not really much. There's not really anything to talk about. I mean, I could, pretty pictures. I mean, these are sort of psychedelic pictures, right? But, um, uh, but that's really as far as it goes is, you know, there's anecdotes and a few pictures, but there have been no good formal studies of the, uh, the areas that in, are impacted by ketamine and most importantly, how those areas talk together or the connectivity or the DTI studies of fMRI. And we need those. So all you young researchers out there looking for something to do, especially if you have an interest in ketamine for some reason, uh, you know, this would be a great place to start. Um, this guy here, uh, Bob Schwartzman, was a real grandfather of the use of this drug as uh, a pain management uh, compound. And he used this in my, uh, probably my favorite uh, uh, pain model, which is complex regional pain syndrome. And his approach was to bring people into the hospital, uh, give them high dose of ketamine, uh, and induce what he called the ketamine coma. He would literally put people in a coma for several days, two days, three days, four days. Now, the first time I heard about this, I went, you know, general anesthesia has risk. Prolonged general anesthesia must have great risk, right, Dr. Schwartzman? He said, no, 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 don't worry about it, no problem. But in fact, the first 98 uh, cases that were reported in the literature by Schwartzman and others, uh, one person died uh, and one person um, developed paralysis because they just left them laying on their back for three days and, of course, they, uh, uh, they had a spinal cord uh, uh, issues. So uh, this risk-benefit ratio for the very high-dose uh, ketamine uh, in analgesia uh, is wrong. The risk-benefit is just wrong. One person dead, one person paralyzed out of 100 is, is just simply not uh, where we want to go. So everybody now talking about using, using this drug uh, uh, in analgesia 
is going to be talking about much lower doses than, than um, uh, Schwartzman talked about. However, um, it doesn't seem to work well in very low doses. It's, it's, not a, it's not a drug that you can use and the patient doesn't notice it and they're going to uh, uh, get any better in particular. Uh, and uh, one, of, one of my favorite uh, uh, things that came up when we did our survey and consensus was, what's the dose? How much do you give? There was absolutely no information about that uh, except for anecdote, but I heard this over and over again. You want to give them just enough that they start to hallucinate, and that's when you start to develop the um, uh, analgesia for chronic conditions like CRPS. So you really have to go up to the they have to see pink elephants on the wall type uh, of doses. Um, I'm not sure Dr. Schwartzman would agree with that statement, but uh, he's retired now, so I guess I get to talk. Okay, so the coma, um, most added from CRPS, very controversial. Um, uh, the ideal therapeutic dose, we don't know, but, but there are publications coming out. There's, there's our survey and consensus work, which we combined. Uh, we published that this year, and then right on the heels of that, there was a, uh, a review of general, uh, ketamine for general an uh, analgesic use. Uh, so we're finally starting to get some, some, some real data, but no randomized control trials at this point. Uh-oh. What did I do? Okay, so as I said, the risk-benefit is wrong for the coma. Um, we about, I guess it was, well, 2015, I've got the date here. Uh, we had done a systematic review of ketamine and CRPS. Uh, and, you know, we went through the whole thing with all the rules, uh, uh, you know, how, the levels of evidence. Uh, and, and the long story short is that what we found, our conclusions were it was no high-quality evidence. Uh, the best that we could find was moderate to low-quality uh, you look into the literature uh, and, you know, they talk about the high-dose uh, ketamine as a randomized controlled trial, and it's a highly, highly flawed study. So it doesn't even count. It doesn't rise to the level of most types of meta-analysis or systematic review. Uh, so the recent surveys and consensus statement are, are designed to set the stage for better coherent research. Uh, but um, we sit right now in the, in, in the wonderful world of anecdote. Okay, so that's a little bit about the scientific background. Now let's talk about the thing. The reason I assume that everybody's in the room, we want to talk about abuse uh, and recreational use. And why in the heck am I talking about this? Well, the reason I'm talking about this and agreed to give this talk in this way uh, is because we have opportunities to see people who have frequent use and high-dose use of ketamine in the dance clubs. Uh, you know, the, 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 um, the acid house movement, you know, started with acid. You know, the people would take psychedelics and dance all night. And then they started using, using NMDA. Um, you may know that as ecstasy, and that was a big one. Uh, but recently I've started hearing, particularly in... Uh, in California, where people are talking about the, the dance clubs are now going into the K-hole. This is what people say, is I'm going into the K-hole tonight. Uh, 
I don't know exactly what that means, but, uh, uh, but, but clearly it's starting to happen, at least, at least in California. You know, they're always the first to explore uh, psychedelics of any kind, right? Um, but uh, uh, the real solid data uh, that we have in terms of high-dose frequent use uh, actually comes out of Hong Kong. I think it started first there. They, they skipped the acid ecstasy step and jumped right into ketamine, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So this drug is pharmacologically a psychedelic. And what does that mean? Well, here's a list of the effects of Special K. That, that's one of the things that's called on the street. And, and I ask myself the question, what in the world about this list is, is going to be fun for anybody? I mean, it doesn't look like it's going to be a blast to me. I guess, you know, you could go down here and say hallucinations. Yeah, people are going after that. That's one of the things that they're pursuing. Separated from body, um, you know, that may be a good thing. Uh, <laughs> pleasant and sensory uh, detachment, um, these people that made this list. But, but you notice all the rest of it looks kind of uh, dysphoric. But clearly, as in all drugs, what's dysphoric to most, as opioids are, there is euphoria in a certain segment of the population. Uh, and I'll try to, try to unearth what, exactly why in the world that is. This drug can be used any which way. Now remember, it's uh, lipophilic and hydrophilic as well. So it crosses blood-brain barrier basically any way uh, you want to take it. Intranasal, intramuscular, intravenous, intrarectal, and oral. Uh, and if you go to blue light, everybody, anybody know what blue light is? It's this, uh, it's this site where they tell you how to abuse drugs, you know, what dose, how, when, where. Uh, they'll tell you any which way you want to do it. They have, they have recipes for intrarectal use, et cetera. So um, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, you know, you can get it in pretty much any way. Um, speaking of, uh, of the psychedelic aspects of this, um, Way back in 1978, now remember this is after they started using this in, in the Vietnam War for, for battlefield use, uh, you know, the academics, this is, this is usually your Timothy Leary, Libby, I mean, you know, all these, all these people, you know, they're scientists, but they can't step back from their science. In other words, they have to participate and take it themselves. Uh, and I'm sure Dr. Moore was far, far, no, that's not true, Moore, Moore experimented with this drug as a psychedelic. Um, and, and this sort of set the stage for this drug slowly becoming a drug of abuse on the street. Um, so abuse data is really hard to come by for ketamine. It hadn't quite made the SAMHSA list yet. There, it, it recently hit the SAMHSA list of emergency department visits. Uh, but uh, this was an estimate that came out um, uh, in, I think, 2013. It said 2.3 million Americans have abused ketamine. It's not a lot by comparison to other drugs of abuse, but apparently this number is rising now. Uh, and here's that uh, uh, SAMHSA liter literature that I mentioned. Uh, notice way up at the top here, you have LSD, GHB, or the date rate drug, and then ketamine. Uh, you know, you're starting to see it uh, in emergency department. It, 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 it by no means is anywhere close to some of the drugs uh, down here that we're more familiar with is, uh, is ending up in the emergency department. 
Now, because I've told you it's fairly safe and, and, and people, uh, it, it would be very difficult to die just with, uh, just with ketamine alone, uh, you know, why do people go to the emergency room? It's, well, because they're freaking out, okay? And most of the, most of the things that happen in the ER department uh, are very transient. It's, a, it's sort of an acute or hyperacute effect, uh, and there's not much that goes on the day after or the week after, uh, but we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, okay, so, so let's talk more about what we know about the um, uh, uh, abuse phenomena. Uh, this is uh, from 1995. Um, it said, uh, ability to induce a lack of responsive awareness, not only to pain, but to the general environment. You know, I guess to an abuser, this is a good thing. Subjective experiences of intoxication, pleasant dreams, intensely visual or polysensual hallucinations, uh, and occasionally full-blown delirium. Sounds like a blast, right? Uh, but, but these, as I say, this sort of emerged from the acid house dance clubs. They used to, you know, they, they started with acid, uh, but then it became what they called the rave. And the rave was most associated early with uh, NMDA or ecstasy. Uh, but apparently now they still have raves, they still have acid house music, acid house clubs, but now they're K-hole clubs, right? I keep pushing the wrong button here. I can't see what's going on. Okay. So, so how many people do die of ketamine? Well, this, uh, this little florid National Enquirer type thing says there's 46 deaths in 2009, but I tried to look into this and tried to understand this better. And apparently these were polydrug deaths. In other words, yes, they were on ketamine, but yes, they were on cocaine or amphetamine or whatever the heck else, and they mixed it all up. So the deaths were probably polydrug deaths. It's unknown whether people do die or have died uh, from ketamine alone. Uh, this is something that turned up in, in my uh, review of this uh, information, and apparently it is emerging now as a date rape drug, uh, as it becomes more available in the club concept. Uh, you know, it's replacing the, the rohypnol uh, now as a, as a date rape drug, and I, I guess it has different characteristics, but it certainly would be effective uh, because it's completely animistic. Um, this is what the, the kids on the battlefield will tell you. You know, they're all shot up, the medic arrived, and they don't remember anything after that. So it's profoundly animistic, uh, which also makes it really difficult to understand in terms of a, a desirous drug of abuse, because if they don't remember having all that fun, what's the point, right? But, but nonetheless, nonetheless, as a date rape drug, it, it apparently is emergent now. All right, so the best information we have in terms of, uh, of people that are, are using the drug on a regular basis and in high dose, interestingly, comes out of Hong Kong. Uh, and these are uh, uh, retrospective studies. Uh, this particular one is the largest and the most compelling database that we have about abuse of ketamine. Uh, and as, uh, as you can see, there's 233 records. I don't know how many overlap patients they had, but, but that's by far the largest. Um, 
most ketamine abusers presented acutely. Uh, like I say, they're freaked out. They had transient uh, central nervous system depression. Uh, they also reported things like abdominal pain, uh, lower urinary tract symptoms. Um, and, and they go on to say in Hong Kong, uh, I'm sure that the emergency room doctors, when they see this in the right age group, you know, they're pretty much on to uh, what they're dealing with. Uh, but in the United States, you know, somewhere like, you know, Des Moines, Iowa, if somebody wandered in with all these symptoms, uh, I'm sure the emergency room doctor would be pretty much at a loss um, unless they knew that it was somehow a, 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 a club drug in Des Moines, Iowa. I don't know that. Um, here's another one, this one from America. Um, but um, it produces effects similar to PCP, I hadn't mentioned this as a, as a psychedelic or hallucinogen. You know, this is a, a old pig tranquilizer or horse tranquilizer or hippopotamus tranquilizer. But it's the same sort of thing. It, it, all these drugs that work on this a axis of NMDA receptor antagonism um, uh, do have a, 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 a possibility in high enough dose to, to become uh, uh, psychedelic. Um, Again, the, the intoxication appears to be short-lived. Uh, they only had 20 patients. Uh, they were discharged from the emergency department when they calmed down. Um, and again, you know, you, you have to be looking for it, and you have to be in, in, in the right um, uh, region uh, to be really on top of this as, as, as diagnosis. But, but it does show up on drug screens. Um, so let's talk about some of, the, some of the things that we've learned from the Hong Kong people primarily uh, that have used high dose regularly. Uh, and one of the things, one of the long-term effects or, or um, side effects, uh, if you will, is a lower, uh, lower urinary tract, uh, uh, actually destruction of the lower urinary tract. Uh, and this has been uh, demonstrated, is demonstrable, uh, and there are some patients that have gone on due to uh, urinary tract or bladder uh, issues uh, to having to go to dialysis. That has occurred. Uh, I don't have a solid number uh, about uh, how often that has her occurred, but uh, this syndrome of cyst uh, cystitis and contracted bladder uh, can be associated with street ketamine abuse. Uh, and it, in some cases it's in irreversible, in some cases it's gone on to uh, uh, needing dialysis. But this would probably be whopping doses. Um, cholelestiasis, biliary uh, dilatation, and um, long-term liver da uh, damage is another thing that is occasionally mentioned anecdotally in the literature. Uh, and then you start to talk about how people that end up in the emergency room, what do they look like? Well. This says that dystonia is uh, an unusual toxic effect. Uh, this is probably not correct. Um, we know from short, all the way back to Schwartzman's work, and certainly the experience of people in Los Angeles and Hong Kong, is that with very high dose, people are locked up. I mean, they're, they're, they can't move. I mean, they're para it's like they, they have a severe, intense muscle spasm and dystonic reaction. So I, although these, uh, these researchers say that it's uh, unusual, uh, that is incorrect for high dose and what shows up in the emergency department. Um, also mania. 
uh, people that take this at sort of low-ish doses right before they, they lock up or go into dystonia or, or become completely um, uh, paralyzed, they get manic. They go nuts. And this is, this is where you hear about people that, you know, they're, they're battling with the police and it's take, taking 30 people to hold them down and being tased and ineffective, uh, ineffected by uh, tasers, et cetera, you know, breaking their handcuffs. Uh, you know, this is, uh, uh, this is a, a known, at least anecdotally, effect of, uh, of medium to high dose uh, ketamine. Long-term brain damage, who knows? I mean, we've got some, um, uh, some flimsy evidence that uh, uh, there's damage to the splenium of corpus callosum. Uh, but remember, now, NMDA receptors, AMPA receptors, are ubiquitous throughout the brain. In other words, when you're impacting those places, I mean, you're, when you're with a drug like this, you're impacting the whole brain. Different people, different times over different temporal, temporal courses, certainly. Uh, but again, we don't have the good fMRI, DTI uh, studies of ketamine, so we don't really know where and how it works um, uh, physiologically. So the long-term side effects of, of high-dose uh, frequent use, uh, probable, there's renal, renal and bladder, uh, liver, uh, delirium, mania, and flashbacks. Uh, there are flashbacks to this, especially if it's used in high dose frequently. And then there's some possible stuff. Uh, again, you just catch whiffs of this in the, in the literature and, and in the um, articles. Uh, so now I'm actually going to get to that part of the, uh, uh, of the talk where I'm really going to talk about the psychedelic side. And and like I say, you know, you can read things about this. You can go to Blue Light and you get all these florid descriptions. Uh, but, but it was all over the place. And everything I read had completely different things that people were pursuing or looking for when they abused the drug. So like I say, I'm a musician. A long time ago, I had a bass player that was into this stuff. And apparently, you know, I talk about the raves uh, and the, uh, the acid house music. This drug has been used long and is now becoming used often in the funk rock uh, arena. Uh, you know, the funk rockers have always been about acid and, and, and uh, NMDA, uh, but apparently now the, the uh, ketamine or special K has, uh, has come into four. Um, and that's why I put up uh, this George Clinton picture here. <laughs> I'm sure George Clinton has never touched a drug in his life. But, but nonetheless, uh, you know, this, these are the descriptive terms that I've got from, from uh, uh, my interview of this person that was familiar. Sounds and senses are accentuated, enha enhanced, intensified, and distorted. Quote, music is sublime. Movement and dance becomes everything. Thus, the dance club uh, thing. People, people get into the K-hole or the zone, and they're just dancing all night. Uh, they have endless energy. Uh, oh, so he says, want to dance all night, enhances, distorts, and intensifies all senses. So it's not just auditory hallucinations or visual hallucinations. Uh, apparently you'll get descriptions of all the senses being uh, ac accentuated or distorted. So visual hallucinations, florid visual hallucinations, color, shape, hue, brightness, change, and flow in a spectacular array. 
Uh, by the way, this bass player I was interviewing is also an English major, so he's a very articulate man, which was one of the, one of the reasons I did interview him. Patterns emerge and take over the visual field. Uh, and then general illusions, delusions, euphoria. Separated from body, floating, a sense of oneness with the universe, uh, intense happiness and pleasure. So, that's, that's his description and, and my attempt to tell you a little bit about what it, why people would abuse this drug and the type of things they experience when they do. Uh, I've given you a reasonable background of the scientific literature, as, as, as poor and embryonic as it is. Uh, and what I've tried to do today is leave plenty of time for questions and discussion. So I'll stop now and we'll do that. Um, okay, now do we have a do we have a microphone for people that or not? There's two two ladies up here that have questions. How high are we talking? I mean, these doses that are being abused in the nightclubs versus the low dose analgesic. Ketamine yes. that we give for, say, like a hospice or palliative care patient. I mean, I'm, I'm not too worried about the long-term effects in that patient population, but how high do you need to get to, to feel those auditory hallucinations? Because we've been pre-dosing with haloperidol and lorazepam on occasion in, in the patients that we worry might experience those types of side effects, and I'm just wondering if that's even necessary. Well, um like I say, when we did the survey, the doses were all over the place. Uh, and nobody really has a, had a rationale for one dose or the other. When we did the consensus group, we kind of narrowed that down. And we tried to portray sort of the bell-shaped curve of what is used clinically. However, I will tell you that there is good evidence that it's very intra-individual. Um, what works, a dose that works for one person is going to have no effect on another and what has no effect on most people is going to cause intense hallucinations in another. So it's really sort of a, uh, an infusion technique thing where you ramp it up and observe the patient and then stop when you get the desired place, the desired effect, if you will. Uh, you know, and then, of course, it's, it, you, know, then, you know, what does your dealer say on the dance floor and how much do they say? Um, I just want to say that it, apparently it's intra-individual. And I want to I want to point point out this nice lady that asked this question put something on my plate that I it never occurred to me and that is the use of ketamine probably fairly low doses of ketamine in a hospice situation. That's I, I've never heard that so I you know thank God I can come to one of these things and learn stuff rather than just stand up here and lecture. But this is uh, this is a fascinating construct and I, I'm, I'm going to definitely look into that and make sure that as we publish going forward that we at least mention it. I'm sorry? Topically? Oh my God. First, first I've ever heard. But you know as a, as a, you know, as a mu agonist uh, you know, I, I can understand that, I assume. And NMDA, what, what does it do out in the periphery? Who knows? Who the heck knows? I mean, we, you know, everybody thinks we know something about NMDA receptor antagonists from the, uh, from the spinal cord, but uh, 
you to use it peripherally. That's a new thing. I've got two new things. So teach me something else. Well, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I'm I, I'm hard of hearing. I too I too am a rock and roll musician. I, I still didn't catch the disease. Mucositis. Okay, right. Right. Uh, yes, and yes, in oncology, I've heard that um, uh, in some cases. And I think that it actually holds a great deal of promise in terms of uh, cancer pain treatment, particularly terminal cancer, and then we're back to the hospice. Uh, okay, when. Um, can, can we do this in order? I, I'd love it if people would speak into the microphone because I'm real hard of hearing. Yes, ma'am. So you've talked peripherally. Is this considered a drug that's addictive or do we have enough information? Well, you know, you, first of all, you have to define addiction, you know, and, and, you know, you have physical addiction that if you don't take it, you get physical symptomatology, withdrawal symptoms. Uh, I've never heard that you really get withdrawal symptoms for, for somebody that's taking it regularly and then doesn't take it. So physical addiction, probably not. Psychological addiction is a, is a very vague sort of nebulous area, uh, but I assume that there are people out there that abuse the drug that they crave it. You know, they want to go to that club or, or, or whatever. But, but I don't think that there's any good data about that. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, do you use uh, con- uh, do you use it in complex regional pain syndrome infusions? That, that's where uh, well, t- CRPS is my uh, principal area of research, uh, and this is where it came onto my plate. I will tell you, full disclosure, I have never given a ketamine infu- infusion in my life. I'm a neurologist and a rehabilitationist, but if I were to use it, of course, I would call uh, an experienced infusionist. This raises an issue, you know, in the era where, you know, you, you're not supposed to use opioids ever again in any dose, period, right? So people are now looking for other stuff, for non-opioid medication. Uh, and what you're seeing is the rise of in- infusion therapy and the rise of infusion sites. Uh, and in my little town of Athens, Georgia, uh, I know now that there are four infusion suites that have just cropped up in the last couple of years, and I've called them, and they all are doing ketamine infusions and lidocaine infusion and this infusion, that infusion. Uh, and who are these people that are doing this, and how good are they? And you know, are they are they watching everything? I mean, in our uh, uh, consensus recommendations for ketamine, we we you know we recommend pretty much a full-on uh, ICU-type setting. Maybe that's too conservative. But I know that doesn't happen in a lot of these infusion suites. So to answer your question, I, 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 don't, you know, I don't use it. I, I never actually prescribed it. Um, but uh, uh, clearly it's, you know, it's there. The advocacy groups for CRPS are extremely interested in this drug they, because they hear so much positive stuff from their patients. Uh, and I... There's actually a, a, a lady um, out, in the, out in the lobby that uh, has uh, CRPS, and she, I don't think she'd mind me telling you that. I won't tell you her name. But she says it's the only thing that's ever helped her. And she's tried it all, you know, and, and you know, had years of just horror show 
issues associated with high-dose opioid. I mean, you got a disease that's characterized by allodynia hyperalgesia, and you have drugs that theoretically, in high dose, can cause allodynia hyperalgesia. Yikes. You know, and there's just a lot of that that goes on. People use what they're comfortable with, what they're trained to have used, and without science, you know. So, so we are hoping that we will get better data, and it may come first from CRPS. However, I do remind you that the best data and the best random, the only randomized controlled trials of any note are from the psychiatric literature. This drug has been used for depression since the 70s, effectively for depression for the 70s. I mean, it'll never catch on in the United States because, you know, DEA and CDC and all of that mess. But, uh, but, but you know, hopefully we'll be getting uh, uh, excellent data, uh, particularly out of Germany. The Germans are, are, are using it for a lot of different things and, and doing good science. So, But, I, you know, if, if I'm allowed to tell you what my patients tell me, CRPS patients, um, uh, in general, are very, very in favor of, uh, of the low-dose ketamine protocols, just till they see pink elephants. Yes, sir. So uh, just to follow up on what you were talking about with psychiatry using ketamine, I actually, um, I'm a psychiatry PA at the Cleveland Clinic, and we're actually, I just had a patient who failed 14 ECT treatments, so she went through a full series um, and she's one of those people that just has not responded to anything. We actually did a series of, she had six ketamine infusions over a two-week period, actually failed them as well. It's now going through tra transmagnetic uh, simulation therapy as well. But we are actually doing trials, again, at the Cleveland Clinic. It's being used pretty frequently, especially in these patients that are failing ECT therapy um, because the, the overall response rate to ECT in general, I think it's between like 75 and 85% for most patients. So they're taking this population that's not responding to ECT and trying these ketamine infusions. And they've been fairly effective, but the problem is the, the effects of them do not last nearly long enough. Um, in, in the case of my patient with the dosing, they are typically dosing it around, they take them to a point where they, they, they to the point where they, they don't start to hallucinate, but they, they feel kind of buzzed from it. Um, with my patient, she got to about 50 milligrams for each of those treatments over a 45-minute um, uh, infusion. So, and, and that's consistent with sort of the, the top of the bell-shaped curve that we did with the CRPS. Um, but I encourage you, since this is such an embryonic science, this is such an embryonic area, as you do these trials and these, these, these literally cases and anecdote, please do publish that. Uh, let me give you my card. One of the other hats I wear is a senior associate editor for pain medicine. And we don't publish case reports unless they're unique and transformative and just exactly like this. So I will give you my card when you, when you get ready to summarize your results, uh, you know, as many patients as you can get, let us know. And we will make an exception and publish in this area. Any other questions, discussions? All you guys that came up front, you got your free samples. Is it starting to kick in yet? <laughs> Pink elephants. <laughs> All right, thanks for coming, guys. Oh, one, one more. All right. Uh, 
and, and I was asking this yesterday as well, I'm still trying to figure out if we have an upper dosing limit. I've had patients come from other clinics who are getting 800 milligrams once a week for an extended period of time. When do you start to see the renal effects? When do you start to really get concerned about that? Is there any literature out there that you're aware of that discusses upper limits of dosing? No. Um, like I say, as inter-individual and different doctors and different diseases, et cetera, um, and, and there is no data about, okay, so this person has been in the clubs and they come in with uh, renal damage, and what kind of doses were they taking? Of course, you know that's, that's not going to be available. 